we light this candle as a sign of joy in the coming light of Christ. As we await Christ's coming, we remember the creative act of God that called God's people into being. We remember the burning bush that called Moses. We remember Samuel, who anointed David as king. We remember the prophets who spoke of the coming Messiah, even as we say, Come, Lord Jesus. As we see this light, we remember that Jesus himself is the light of the world. We remember the promises you made to your people in every age. We remember your covenants with Noah, with Moses, with David, and the new co covenant open to us in Jesus Christ. We remember with joy that you are faithful to your word always, even as we say, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray together. God of grace, ever faithful to your promises, the earth rejoices in the joy of our Savior's coming and looks forward with longing to his return. Prepare our hearts to receive him when he comes, for he is Lord of all time and space. Amen. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream.
the Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoice. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses of the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Holy and present God, we welcome your divine joy into our lives today. We know that this joy does not come as naive optimism or surface-level feel-goodness. We know that this joy cannot be imposed on high. It cannot be commanded. Instead, your holy joy is mixed with grief. It exists side by side with mourning. It knows that pain and death are all too real, but they do not have the final word. Your joy, O God, is collective. It is liberating, freeing us from the crushing dominance and deadly despair. Come, O come, Emmanuel. May the joy of your presence be born within us this day. We pray in the name of the Lord God, Emmanuel. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord, and it is precisely because we have gathered in Christ's name that our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. We are glad and grateful to greet one another in Christ's name, and that is indeed a great joy. And it means that our welcome is one that can be offered with the authenticity that we can only receive from Christ. I'd like to invite everyone, members and guests alike, to sign the friendship tag. You'll find that on your pew. You may sign it and send it down and back again, and that will give us the advantage of each other's names. I'd also like to invite those of you worshiping at home or in other locations to sign our virtual friendship pad so that we might note your attendance as well. Everyone, members and guests alike, we, we would be delighted if you would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a very short ramp, and there you will find light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity for us to gather together in Christian fellowship. I'd like to highlight a few things for our common life together that are upcoming, uh, the not least of which is our upcoming services. You have a primer on them in your bulletin. Let me just run through them quickly for you so that no one is taken by surprise by what they encounter this week. On Wednesday night, we will have our annual service of Light in the Darkness, our service for the longest night. That service takes place at 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary. And that is a service for anyone who is feeling pain or loneliness or just out of sorts during the holiday season. And it is a service for people who love people who might be feeling any of those things. So if you are feeling those things or if you are willing to bear in solidarity with those who are finding the holiday season a bit more difficult, please join us here on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Parking is available under our usual arrangement on on-street parking opposite side beginning at 5 o'clock that evening. Now on Christmas Eve, because that falls on a Sunday, we will have a total of three services. The first service will be at 11 a.m. This service will be the fourth Sunday of Advent. 
So you should come preparing to sing Advent hymns and hear about prophecies and things that we talk about during Advent. We would love if anyone would like to join our parish choir that morning for them to come early and to learn an anthem here on site and lead in, the, in worship as part of the choir that day. At 4 o'clock, we will have our celebration Christmas service, which is designed specifically with children in mind. Adults are certainly welcome. There will be communion. There will be a, a sermon. But it is designed with children in mind, so don't be surprised if you see some wiggly children holding glow sticks, which they will probably break open before we get to singing Silent Night. But nonetheless, it will be a joyful service. The full choir will be here for that celebration service at 4 o'clock. Then at 8 o'clock, our traditional lessons and carol service will take place here in the sanctuary. And I've just received word that parking is available beginning at 9 o'clock and it will be available until 11 p.m. opposite side parking, just like we have on Sunday morning. So the city has been very generous in our parking for those services uh, for Holy Week. I'm sorry, for, for uh, Christmas Eve. Let's see, what have I not covered that I need to cover? Ah, thank you to everyone who has pledged. Your pledges make it possible for us to budget a little bit more reliably than other we might otherwise be able to. There is a pledge update in the bulletin. If you have not pledged and you would like to, we would be delighted to give you a packet with information about how the church uses our budget, uh, about our vision for the years to come, and a little bit of, about our history and so forth. Uh, those packets will be available. Just let anyone on the church staff know, and we'll make sure that you get a copy of that. If you are anxious about pledging, but nonetheless you intend to be consistent in your giving, it is so helpful to our church finance office if you tell them that, and it can be as simple as saying, hey, I've made a recurring gift, and, and I expect that it will continue, and then we can reliably count on that as part of the church's income for the year to come. But whether you are making a recurring gift, or whether you are pledging, or whether you simply put something in the plate every Sunday, we are grateful for the support of our members that make ministry here at First Church possible. So on behalf of your stewardship and budget committee and the annual giving team, thank you all very much. With all these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. For many of us, confession can be an uncomfortable practice. It can pull at our more perfectionistic and image-conscious tendencies and leave us feeling less than we actually are. But the purpose of confession is not to invoke a sense of guilt or shame or inadequacy. Instead, we dare to come to confession each week with a sense of joy because we recognize that we are already accepted, already loved, already enough for the God of all creation. We are free to speak truthfully about the things we have done and left undone, trusting that our belovedness remains intact. So come. Let us bravely, boldly, and joyfully pray our prayer of confession, first in unison and then in silence. Let us pray. Holy God, everything that we know of you, all that has been revealed in Jesus Christ, teaches us that our lives should be filled with great rejoicing. With abundance upon abundance, you have met the needs of our bodies. With grace upon grace, you have provided for the needs of our souls. You deal with us with our guests, and we freely. Too often, though, our songs of joy do not escape our lips. 
We do not rejoice where rejoicing is called for. Forgive us for when we fail to see your goodness to us. Orient our lives yet again to your good news as we offer these and all our prayers in Jesus' name. no height, no depth, no width, and no end. God awaits our prayers with joyful expectation and wild acceptance. We are forgiven, we are embraced, and we are free to celebrate this day with reckless joy. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. Listen for God's word for you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to, all, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint of spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among all the people. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Our second scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Listen again for God's word for you. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor upon the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has do done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy are for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with, with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. May God add a blessing to these readings. Our epistle lesson today comes to us from the fifth chapter of First Thessalonians. We read the 16th verse to the 24th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this 
is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophet. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do all of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Having a good dog is the closest that some of us will ever come to knowing the direct love of a mother or God, so it's no wonder that it knocked the stuffing out of Sam and me when Sadie died, writes Anne Lamott. I promised Sam we would get another puppy someday, but privately I resolved never to get another dog. I didn't want to hurt that much again if I could possibly avoid it. And I didn't want my child's heart to break like that again. But you don't always get what you want. You get what you get. She says, this is a real problem for me. You want to protect your child from pain, and what you get instead is life and grace. And though theologians insist that grace is freely given the truth is that sometimes you pay for it through the nose and you can't pay your child's way. She concludes, we never should have gotten a dog to begin with. They all die. While it is subversive when artists make art that will pass away in the fullness of time or later that day, it's not as ennobling when your heart breaks. Isn't that the truth? There is just something about the fear of having your heart broken or your family's hearts broken that is enough to scare you off the idea of ever wanting to have a dog at all. But really, Lamott isn't writing about dogs, is she? To live risking love is to open ourselves to the possibility of heartache. 
We are finite beings. And that which we love, those whom we love, well, Ecclesiastes reminds us it all blows away in the end. Well, perhaps the things that weigh on our heart are not quite so dramatic. Perhaps one day we simply wake up to a sense of numbness and disconnection from our sources of joy. Would that leave us craving a song that can subvert the painful moments of life? You know, it's often claimed that the gospel is a subversive song, but I wonder if the claim has been made so frequently and offered so often without substance as to be rendered meaningless. It does seem at times as though we are in a period when the effectiveness of words to communicate meaning is a casualty of the intractability of our deeply entrenched views. Perhaps we need a better definition, a common definition for all of us, of what it means to be subversive. One that declares what it is that we hope to subvert in the first place. A word that says plainly that we are in opposition to anything that says this is as good as it gets. The Apostle Paul suggests just such a word in his letter to the Thessalonians. The letter to the Thessalonians is the oldest piece of scripture in the New Testament. It's also a bit unusual for Paul who so frequently seemed to be pressed into correspondence for the purpose of correcting the trajectory of the churches he had founded. But Thessalonians, this letter, is written simply because he loves them. His companions on his missionary journeys have been in touch with the Thessalonians, and they report back to Paul, nothing more pressing than that the church misses them. It's the sort of ache that comes not from great injury, but from great love. As the correspondence of Paul goes, this is an easy read. You can knock Thessalonians out in under 20 minutes. And while good bits of it might seem to be formulaic advice about how to live a decent life, there is a turn in the fourth chapter, and I use the word chapter very loosely, it's only about this long, that grounds what Paul is teaching about their way of life in a future reality of God's grace that is more powerful than death. So before Paul in the fifth chapter, tells the Thessalonians to rejoice in all things, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks constantly. He grounds their hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of his return. And in that way, it is a subversive word because it reminds us that in Jesus Christ, God even subverts death. When death comes, it is so often love that causes the ache 
isn't it? Not very long ago, one of you shared with me how hard you found it to come to church during a particularly challenging time. You spoke of how difficult it was to sit in the pew and be surrounded by seemingly happy people and recounted that it was exquisitely painful to sing the hymns when your heart was breaking, but that nonetheless, you simply couldn't not do it because the words of comfort you needed were the words that we were singing. Isn't it always the singing that cracks us open? Paul is admonishing the Thessalonians and therefore admonishing us to sing a subversive song all the time so that when we come to our harder moments, the language of faith is already on our tongues and enables us to give voice to the subversive promises of God. Now Paul comes by his insights honestly leaving aside the sufferings that Paul recounts in some of his other correspondence, and they are impressive. Leaving that aside, Paul was well-schooled in the scriptures of his people, and he knew what the Bible teaches about the presence of God with those who are suffering. In Advent, we so often hear from the prophet Isaiah. We read this morning from the third period of Isaiah's prophecy. That's the part when the exiles are coming back to what the prophets suggest is a ruined country. If ever there were a scripture for people feeling disconnected, disintegrated, discombobulated, it is the third section of Isaiah. They are coming back to a city that they love, whose shalom matters a great deal to them and whose destruction they were seemingly powerless to stave off. This is the moment that they have anticipated for so long, aching to return to the home they love, to come back to this city that has been their dwelling place, a city whose spiritual center grounds and roots them. So when we encounter the word of God in the third part of Isaiah, it is to a people who know what it is to mourn, who are well acquainted with sitting in ashes, who have experienced the reality of living with a failing spirit. They can see the ruins. They know the devastation. And they are well aware of all that it will take for them to rebuild all of these things are evident to them, and they need a word from the Lord. So Isaiah invites them to look beyond what they can see and to remember who God has been and to remember 
that God has always been in the business of raising up new life from the ashes of what has been obliterated, even when the obliteration is self-inflicted. God has a long history, not of erasing what has been, but instead redeeming what can yet be. Isaiah knows that God's promises are durable and reliable on the basis of all of their faith. God's promises are overwhelming. But let's be clear about this. The promise is not that it will be easy. I'm reminded of Flannery O'Connor's short story, The Enduring Chill. Perhaps you've read it. In it, O'Connor weaves the tale of a young man named Asbury who has lived his entire life believing that he is dying. And in a reversal of fortune, he learns after the priest and the physician have been called to attend to him that he's not dying at all but that his life will never be easy. As he contemplates this new reality that has dawned on him, O'Connor writes, a blinding red-gold sun moved serenely under a purple cloud. Below it, the tree line was black against the crimson sky. It formed a brittle wall, standing as if it were the last frail defense that he had set up in his mind to protect him from what was coming. The boy fell back on his pillow and stared at the ceiling. His limbs, that had been racked for so many weeks with fever and chill, were numb now. The old life in him was exhausted. He awaited the coming of the new. It was then that he began to feel the, he felt the beginning of a chill, a chill so peculiar, so light, that it was like a warm ripple across a deeper sea of cold. His breath came short, the fierce bird which through the years of his childhood and the days of his illness had been poised over his head, waiting mysteriously, appeared all at once to be in motion. Asbury blanched, and the last film of illusion was torn as if by a whirlwind from his eyes. He saw that for the rest of his day, frail, racked, but enduring, he would live in the face of a purifying terror. A feeble cry, a last impossible protest escaped him. But the Holy Ghost, emblazoned in fire instead of ice, continued implacable to descend. Divine love does not play by our rules, but divine love is the basis of all joy. The subversiveness that joy offers is a different perspective on life and faith 
and who we want to be. Joy reminds us that it matters that we come and gather together and hear these stories together and ground ourselves in the promises of God and that we do it because we love one another. I mean, even when we don't love one another, we love one another. That's what's what church is. And that sort of durable love leads to the inscrutable joy that comes from God and orients us so that we may live the way that Paul suggested we might live. That we might hear what Isaiah has prophesied and know who God is. Rejoice, Paul says. Rejoice, Isaiah says. Rejoice. Written all over the pages of faith. But, as I contemplate these circumstances behind their joy, I am reminded of a favorite scrap of poetry from Wendell Berry. Be joyful, even though you have considered all the facts. Now, for just a second, forget what we know about Mary's story. Forget what we understand is the outcome. And think about this particular moment. The moment about which we read. Really, what did Mary have to be joyful over? Please don't think me too flippant. But let's consider all the facts, shall we? There is more to this story than just having an angel show up with good tidings. Sure, Gabriel sneaks in, tells Mary that the Holy Spirit is coming to overshadow her, and she is going to be great with child, and she replies, Let it be with me according to your word. But knowing what she knows about the Romans, Knowing what she knows about her homeland and her people. Everything she could imagine should suggest that if Gabriel is telling the truth, the life of the child she will bear will be hard. Life will be hard for her child and life will be hard for her mother. Then, and this is going back just a little bit before what we read this morning, the next thing we see is she's a few counties away staying with her elderly cousin. And say what you will, but this is the first century equivalent of being sent away to another state in the middle of junior year to care for an elderly relative before the pregnancies can begin to show and embarrass your family. It is not a natural impulse under such circumstances to break into song. But have you ever noticed that Mary doesn't start singing the minute that Gabriel leaves her? It's just a few verses. If we're not paying attention, if we, if we skim over it, we could miss it. But Mary doesn't start her song just yet. She 
starts singing after she is received and believed in love. The subversive fact of love is the basis for her subversive song of joy. Which brings us to the main thing. It is the sharing of love that subverts the powers of destruction and prepares the way for the coming of joy. Faith may lend us a great many wondrous things, comfort in the face of sorrow, companionship in the face of joy, an ethic for living in an increasingly disintegrated world. All of these things are worthy of our gratitude. But perhaps it is when faith offers us joy that the redemptive purposes of God may break through. You know that old joke that opera is when a guy gets stabbed in the back and instead of bleeding, he sings? That is also true of the gospel. The subversiveness of joy is that precisely at the moment when it seems that panic is called for, when conventional wisdom says, take the punch, lie down, don't get up. Faith sings instead that the present reality we see is not the fullness of God's reality because God's joy will break in and shine a light that allows us to see more deeply and brightly the future that is held in God's hands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
As we continue to prepare for Christ's arrival on earth this Advent season, let us affirm our faith in him with these words from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Come, let us confess together what we believe. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him human nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the human, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very human, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humankind. You may be seated. Isaiah, Paul, and Mary offer us a vision of a transformed reality, a world where the lowly are lifted up and the hungry are filled with good things, a world where the brokenhearted are bound up and the prisoners are set free, a world where we dare to rejoice always and without end. We are invited to bring our offerings together this morning with the imagination of our ancestors in mind. Come and give daring to participate in this new world to come. Our tithes and offerings will now be received.
let's pray. Loving God, may we be like your prophets and proclaim visions of the new world to come. May we be unbound by the messages of others that tell us we are too small, too weak to make a difference. And may we be emboldened to unabashedly participate in your transformational work in the world. God bless these gifts that they may be used for the joyful liberation of all people. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Emmanuel. Amen. Let us bring our joys, our concerns, our faiths, and our doubts alike in prayer. Let us pray. Living God, you come to dwell among us in flesh like ours, in flesh like our neighbors. Help us to remember this day that we are made in your image, that all life and all lives are potential sites of your sacred presence. Wherever there is beauty and connection, wherever there is liberation and freedom, wherever there are practices of care and compassion, your presence is among us. Loving God, we have been told much about joy. We have been made to believe that joy can be achieved or awarded or purchased or bottled up. But you offer us a different vision of celebration, one that is not rooted in status or wealth, but instead in vulnerability. This Advent, we witness how joy can be born in a manger, how it can arrive unexpectedly and catch us by surprise. Holy God, fill us this day with your revolutionary joy, a joy that acknowledges our pain and heartache and still gives us reason to celebrate. Remind us again and again how even in the face of our imperfections and wounds and unfilled desires, we still have reason to rejoice. Liberating God, we hear your invitation that beckons us into a new reality. May we take to heart Mary's words about the lowly being lifted up and the mighty brought low. May we be empowered by Isaiah's words about captives and prisoners being set free. May we be embodying Paul's words about ceaseless praise and rejoicing. May these words guide our actions and become part of our being. May your new world be born within us this day here at First Church in Philadelphia, in the United States, and across your beloved world. We hear this day, O oh God, your invitation to participate in the world to come. Strengthen us and raise us up so that we might meet your holy presence with ceaseless joy and wild hope. Fill us even now with your joyful presence as we pray the prayer that your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
that scrap of poetry comes from Wendell Berry's poem, Manifesto, the Mad, Cow, Mad, Mad, Mad Farmer Liberation Front, which is truly one of the best poetry titles I've ever heard in my life. It's a fabulous poem, but it invites us to be joyful though we have considered all the facts. But I might suggest this. The gospel says instead, be joyful because you have considered all the facts. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to, be sh to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.